0: focus on, these um, famous verses from chapter 1 of John's Gospel. Now, as we um, think about these verses from John's Gospel, I wonder if you've noticed that over the last couple of years, there's been a really big shift in the way that Christmas is advertised in our culture at large, in the Western culture. Gone are the kind of mere um, consumerism, product placement, focus on those, and instead now Uh, Companies, organizations, brands focus on very much the values that underpin Christmas. So I don't know, for example, if you've seen the John Lewis advert this year, Um, but there's not a single product uh, of John Lewis, not even a mention of John Lewis throughout the whole of the advert. Instead, what we have is an alien girl who gets um, gets stranded on her ship on Earth and a young boy who befriends her. Um, And the whole theme of it is really about nostalgia, coming up on the screen at the end of it is make this Christmas as magical as your first, presumably drawing on themes of E.T. from Christmas, you know, gone past. But there's also kind of strong themes of accepting the stranger in the midst, which of course is really poignant um, for us um, in our present day and age. It's not just John Lewis, right? I don't know if you've seen the Audi advert. Very similarly, hardly a, a product on display at all throughout the whole of this kind of um, Christmas retelling from Audi. And then it comes to the end, and what are you're expecting, I suppose, is you know, buy one turkey, get one free, you know, the classic bog-off. And uh, you don't get any of that. Instead, you get coming up on the screen, the moral of the story, the answer you'll find, for you to be happy, you have to be kind. There You, go. you didn't know that you get morality from Audi, did you? But you do and, um, you know, with a Christmas twist as well. And I, I think part of the reason behind this is because, you know, we've become inured, bored as a culture with just the mere consumerism. That's fine, but we've, we've got a sense there's a, something deeper to, to Christmas. Um, and as we fear, you know, Christmas being cancelled for yet another year, what is it that we're fearing about that? It's not just missing out on the presents, is it? I wonder if it's even more than just catching up with friends and family, as important as that is. I wonder if there's a sense that there's something more to Christmas. It's not just another holiday. Well, into that context, John's gospel is a great gospel and John chapter 1 for us to be looking at, because whilst Matthew and Luke, if you've read them in the, the nativity accounts, focus very much on the events of the first Christmas, the things you'll be familiar with, you know, shepherds, wise men, angels, a star, and the Christ child born. John doesn't focus so much on the events. He focuses on what it's all about, interpreting and understanding that first Christmas. So what is it that we are holding on to? What is it that Christmas is really about? Well, come with me as we look from John chapter 1 and notice two things that I think really put the magic back into Christmas, if you really grasp what these mean. The first one, knowing God. It's all about that. Second one, relating to God. So, knowing God and relating to God. Let's look. Um, verse 14, you can see it there in your handouts. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John was writing this, you know, some 2,000 years ago in the first century, about mid to late part of the first century. And as he was writing, he was very conscious that, well, he was writing in Greek, and the word he uses for the word became flesh is the logos became flesh. Um, It's where we get the idea of logic from today. And for a couple of hundred years, the Greek philosophers had been debating, and it was a popular cultural level debate, about how it is that you understand God, how it is you understand the eternal or the transcendent. And they had argued for a couple of hundred years that it was all about the logos, It was all about logic, reasoning, Uh, we might say kind of deductive proofs. If you're going to know God, you would have to know Him through deductive reasoning, through logic, through being certain and being sure. And look, I wonder where you sit on the spectrum, but my hunch is that for a lot of us today that kind of quite appeals. You know, I I often hear when I'm talking to people, them say things like, look, Peter, I I believe in God if I could be 100% sure. You know, if if there was some scientific experiment that could prove to me that God exists, then I'd believe in God. I'm a reasonable person. But the problem is there isn't, right? This kind of desire for certainty, for logic, for reasoning. Can can we put God in a test tube and test Him and prove it to be be sure? And so that's what we look for. And that was the same for the Greeks a couple of thousand years ago. There's a problem with that, though, isn't there? I mean, first, are you ever 100% sure of anything in this world? I mean, I get to the privilege of conducting weddings. And um, can I just tell you, I've never met a bride and a groom, no matter how much they love each other, before they get married, who is 100% sure? So what, does that make marriage the most reckless decision you ever make because you're not 100% sure you commit to something? No, no, well, you maybe think it is. You can talk to me afterwards, I'll counsel you. But no, no, not at all, right? You know, the whole point is, is that it's about commitment. You're not sure. You can get some reassurances. Of course, you, you hope you know the person. But that's the point of Relationships. It's about commitment. There is always a moment where you step into something and you're not sure. All the big decisions of life, I put it to you, we're not 100% sure about. That's a kind of a, you know, the people who search for that search in vain. Second thing is that if you, you know, kind of treat life like I will only commit to the things that make me 100% sure you know what, life is going to pass you by whilst you sit on the sidelines. Other people are committing. Other people are taking reasonable risks, and you become, sadly, a commitment phobe, always on the outside looking in. So it is with God. You can't be 100% sure. Sure, there's great evidence for it. Read the gospel accounts. Take a John's gospel at the end. Look at it for yourself. There's more than enough evidence, but not that type of 100% evidence, because is there for anything, really? No, you can't be logically 100% sure, but you can be sure enough. But there's also a second part, as John writes this for the first century. He wasn't only thinking about the Greeks and their way of thinking, he's also thinking about the Jews. And so, in the second part of verse 14, he writes this, we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Now, glory was a supreme concern for the Jews at the time. You know, for them to know God was about an experience of His glory. One of the high points of the Old Testament is when Moses, one of the great patriarchs, says to God in Exodus 33, 34, show me your glory. He's saying, God, let me experience you, know you, know what you're really like. Let me, give me a sense, give me an experience of you, God. That was one of the great Jewish concerns, an experience of God's glory. In other words, you've got the Greeks longing for logic, reason, certainty. You've got the Jews really longing for an experience. And I guess those of you who aren't so turned on by the kind of logic, probably are more experiential, and you're saying, Peter, I'd believe if I could have that kind of Tangible experience of God. If I had a real spiritual experience, then I'd know and then I'd believe, but it just hasn't worked out for me. I haven't had that, right? And often, not just those who aren't Christians, but Christians think that way as well. I'd be more certain if I just could really experience God, but I don't feel enough. Well, it's interesting that what John says in that context is he says, no, no, there's something even better that actually it's about Christ dwelling. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Let me put it like this. Uh, let's say you're a music fan. I don't know, pick your, you know, singer of 2021, whoever it is, I don't know, Billy Eilish or, you know, Ed Sheeran or Beyonce, if you're that way inclined or whatever. You could, you could be a person who knows loads of things about that singer, Right. You could say, I I know when their platinum albums were, I know how many albums they've sold, I know how many number ones they've got. You could know everything about that person, but you wouldn't know that person, right? Similarly, you could go to their concert. You could go to an Ed Sheeran concert, and you could say, I've experienced his glory. You know, I've had a powerful experience of Ed Sheeran, but you, you don't know him. So you can know everything about someone, you can have a powerful experience of someone, but you don't really know someone. You know what's better than both knowing about and experience? I mean, imagine if that person said... I want to dwell with you, I want to really know you and for you to know me, wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that be well beyond going to a Beyoncé concert, actually to say, I know Beyoncé? I mean, if that's not your thing, just plug in the person of your choice, right? In other words, this is what John is saying, he's saying we don't just know things about God, nor have we just had an experience of God, though both of those would be wonderful to a degree. We know something better than that. We actually know God. You say, well, how's that possible? It's possible because He's dwelt with them. Jesus Christ, that first Christmas, came down, God in human form, and made His dwelling with the disciples, with us, with humanity. I can hear you maybe thinking, well, that's great if you're in the first century, but Pete, you know, where is he today? Well, that's the thing. If you read on in John's Gospel, John talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, and he says that when the Spirit comes, when Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to heaven, he sends his Spirit so that God continues to dwell with his believers today. So if you trust in God, it's not just abstract knowing about God, nor is it just some kind of mystical experience of God, though it is at least both of those. It is actually to know God. As you read the words of Scripture, His Holy Spirit makes them real to you. As you sometimes have a sense of His love in your heart, His Holy Spirit reassures you that that's true. He dwells with you. That is what Christmas is about. As the words of the hymn put it, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, a relationship knowing about God, knowing Him and relating to Him. Well, if that's the first thing about knowing God, then you might say, okay, well, if I'm going to know God, I guess what are the terms of that relationship? I mean, after all, you know, to know God, it's probably not going to be like any normal relationship. Well, you're right. I'm glad you asked about that. So we are gonna now look about what it looks to relate to God. How do we relate to God? And that really takes us to the next bit where he describes at the end of verse 14, full of grace and truth. The only son who came from the Father is full of grace and truth. And then he goes on to say, John testify concerning him, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we've all received grace in place of grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, there's that phrase that comes again, comes through Jesus Christ the key phrase grace and truth is they're in contrast to the law. Now, um, as a vicar, when I'm at a social gathering or something and someone says, what do you do? You get that moment where you say, I'm a vicar. And one of two things normally happens. Firstly, people look for the door and try to get out the conversation pretty quickly. Um, And I don't think it's just me. I think it's more the role, or at least that's what my wife tells me. Um, And secondly, um, if they don't look for the door, what normally happens is people try to talk to me a bit about their moral track record. It's really remarkable. Um, So they say things like, oh, you're a vicar. Um, yeah, you know, it's not been a great year for me, a few things I'm not proud about, but I've been giving to charity, as though, I don't know, I'm kind of... Now, why is it that people do that? Either look for the door or give me their moral track record? And I'm judging by the nods that you've probably done that, right? Um, I think it's one of these things. I think people kind of relate to vicars or to ministers, pastors, slightly how they think that they need to relate to God. Now, not, I don't have a Messiah complex. Um, but what I'm saying is this, is that people view that they've got to relate to God on the basis of their moral performance, And that does one of two things. If you've had a good life, then you quite like to list your track record. Yeah, not not perfect, but, you know, pretty good. Or if you've done badly, you look for the door. That's how we try to relate to God, right? We relate to Him on the basis of law. That is our moral and our religious effort. But in contrast to that, John says when Jesus comes, He does not want to relate to us on the basis of law. He wants to relate to us on the basis of two things, grace and truth. Now, how does that function? Well, grace is about acceptance. It means unmerited favor. It means you not only not getting what you do deserve when you've done something wrong, but you getting far more than you deserve. It's about gifts. It's about generosity. It's about looking at you and loving you. It says that's grace. And on one level, that's hugely attractive, isn't it? But that does raise a question, well, what about you know, when we get things wrong? Well, it says truth as well. In other words, God doesn't just commit a cosmic sweeping under the carpet. He doesn't just say, well, boys will be boys and girls will be girls, and despite cosmic evil that's done in my world doesn't matter, I'm just going to love everybody. No, he says there also needs to be some truth, some kind of dealing with that as well. Now, I wonder if you pause and reflect on this for a moment, grace and truth. I wonder if you can see that our culture tends to the extremes of these and has no idea how to hold these two together. So on one hand, when it comes to morality, our culture wants to hold two competing things at the same time. It wants to say, on one hand, grace, it's fine. As long as you authentically believe it's the right way to live and as long as it doesn't really hurt people, just do whatever you want to do, right? You do you. It's license. It's kind of unrestricted grace. But on the other hand, we have cancel culture, and isn't that ugly, that says, if you muck up in the wrong area, and we discover the truth about that, we'll erase you. You're gone, and all the brands will pull away from you, and if you're not a person with brands following you, then just all your friendship group will go, you're canceled, you're gone. That is kind of truth with all the hard edges to it. So how do you hold those two together? Well, when Jesus comes and says, I am full of grace and truth, He says, here's the thing. Take truth. He says, I know the truth about you. I am God in human form. I I see you. Yeah, I see you, the real you, behind all the filters, behind all the Instagram, you know, making it look good. I see you, the real you. The you that you don't even want to admit is there. I see you, warts and all. Good, yeah, high hopes, wonderful ideals, bad. Yeah, I see the skeletons in the closet. I know your past. I know the thing you don't want anyone to know about you. I see you, the real you. But he doesn't come to cancel you because he sees you. He looks at you, the real you, warts and all, and here's the most remarkable thing. He loves you. That's grace. You say, how can that be possible? How can you not just sweep bad, evil under the carpet. How can you love people when they've done something wrong? Well, it's because Jesus came and He lived the perfect life that we should have lived, and because He did that, He was able to die the death that we all deserve to die for the ways in which we've not lived perfectly. In other words, He doesn't cancel us. No, He was canceled on the cross, if I can put it like that, so that we might have His acceptance. He is described as the light of the world, yet on the cross He was plunged into darkness, so that we might come into the light and not be fear, not fear being exposed. And so that is the most remarkable thing at all. You no longer say to God, God, you should accept me because of all the things I've done, because nothing could ever persuade a perfect God to really accept you if you think about it, nor do you say, well, God, that's it, it's all over for me and I'm canceled and there's no hope. No, you come and you say, God, you know the truth about me, and yet you still love me. You still want to dwell with me. You still want to relate to me and me to know you and you to know me because of your son Jesus Christ and what he's done. That's what that first Christmas is about. And I wonder, therefore, as I close, you can see why it is that Christmas is something more than consumerism. Christmas is something even more than relating and getting back together with family. Christmas is about knowing God and is about relating to God and knowing you're deeply loved by him and accepted by him, even though he knows what you've done. That was why in the first Christmas, the angels sang. That is the real meaning of Christmas. Well, you've been really kind in listening, and I'd love to chat to you more about this afterwards. It's worth saying there are some booklets at the back that you can take away with you. They'll explain a little bit more about that. Um, but I'm going to pause and say a prayer, and the choir are going to come up and take their seats as I do that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for that first Christmas, and we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that it means for him to have come as fully human but also fully God. Help us, wherever we're at, to think it through and to know him and to relate to him and draw close to him this Christmas, we pray. For his name's sake. Amen.